for leading us in worship this morning. If your Bibles, you may want to turn with me to John chapter 14. This past Monday afternoon, some of us met here at the church to celebrate the life of Mr. David Post, Ruth's husband. He was 82 years old. For the past number of years, his body and mind had deteriorated. And so on Wednesday, January 16th, having come to believe earlier in his life that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, he crossed over from death to life, real life, eternal life. Wayne officiated the funeral service And I preached. Early in the week, Wayne had asked me what passages of Scripture I'd like to be read as part of that funeral service. And I suggested Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, which is all about there is a time for everything, a season for every activity under the heavens. And then the passage that we want to focus on this morning. John chapter 14, verses 1 to 6. Certainly a familiar passage of Scripture. You'll remember in John chapter 13, Jesus and his disciples were sequestered in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem. They had prearranged for the room in anticipation for the feast of Passover. It was Thursday night of the final week of Jesus' earthly life. On Monday, they had entered the city of Jerusalem, or maybe re-entered the city of Jerusalem, and experienced the triumphal entry. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. In less than 12 hours, the crowd would be shouting again. Only this time, it was crucify him. Crucify him. And none of this caught Jesus by surprise. In fact, beginning in John chapter 13 and going all the way through to the end of John chapter 16, we find Jesus preparing the twelve, his closest ministry companions, for his imminent departure. Look again at verse 1 of John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And Jesus went on and demonstrated that to-the-end type love In verses 4 and 5, he got up from the supper and he laid his garments, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. 
Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Notice verse 15. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. And then we come to John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. And remember, this is a new part of the commandment. The commandment to love one another was well embedded in the Old Testament law. That was not new. But Jesus' example of love, love the way Jesus loved them, that was new. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. In verses 21 through 30, Jesus exposed and explained the one who, although he was sitting in their very presence in that upper room, the one who would hand him over to the chief priests and Pharisees. And once identified, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, left them and went out into the night. Last week, we focused on verses 31 through 38, where Jesus continued to prepare now the 11 remaining disciples for his imminent departure by providing four faith preservers, an alternate perspective, an advance notice, a new commandment, and an honest assessment. Poor Peter. That brings us to the first six verses of John chapter 14, where Jesus identifies a problem, proposes a remedy, and then provides a rationale for that remedy. Problem, remedy, rationale. If you are able, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading from God's Word. We'll begin at verse 36 of John chapter 13 and read down to the end of chapter 14, verse 15. Beginning then at verse 36 of John chapter 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you 
to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you, and yet you, you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, you are eternal. The psalmist declares, before the mountains were born, you gave birth to the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And you created us in your image. Male and female, you created us. You've placed eternity in our hearts. If this life is all there is, then we are indeed to be pitied. But your word is crystal clear. For Christ also died once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us safely home to God. The hope of heaven. As we study this passage here in John chapter 14 this morning, may we catch a glimpse, just a glimpse of the reality beyond this life. And may that reality prepare us further for the challenges and adversities that we are sure to face while living in a less than perfect world, full of less than perfect people, surrounded by all kinds of less than perfect circumstances. May the truth of these verses we are about to study this morning be embedded in our minds and hearts and become anchors for our souls through the storms of life. Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life? It's a great question. That's the first line of a classic hymn titled, We Have an Anchor. It's also the question that the 
11 remaining disciples are about to experience up close and real personal. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? Here in John chapter 14, Jesus is continuing to prepare the remaining disciples for the coming storm. Preparing them so that their anchor will hold, that it will not drift, but remain firm. Notice, first of all, the problem that Jesus addresses, a troubled heart. Jesus is speaking when it says, do not let your heart be troubled. That directive was for his disciples. What caused their hearts to be troubled? Why were they experiencing troubled hearts? Let's think through John chapter 13. What we already know based on our previous studies. First of all, Jesus has just announced that Peter, the leader among equals in relation to the twelve, was going to deny even knowing Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times before the sun would rise. John chapter 13, verse 38. Truly, truly, I say to you, to Peter, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Hearing an announcement like that will leave us with a troubled heart. Secondly, Jesus kept on talking about his imminent departure. And not just departing, but he insisted that these 11 could not go with him. That he needed to go it alone. In verse 36, Jesus' response is directed again at, at Peter, who had questioned him. Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Verse 33 of John chapter 13 is addressed to all the disciples. Little children, I will be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot follow. Now it's important for us to, to keep in the back of our mind that these disciples have left absolutely everything to follow Jesus. In Luke chapter 5, Jesus called fishermen to follow him, promising to make them fishers of men. They responded, we are told in verse 11, when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Later in the same chapter, he calls a, a tax collector who responds in a, in a similar way. And he left everything behind, got up, and began to follow him. Peter later on claimed as much in Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Behold, we have left everything to follow you. 
these disciples, they were all in. And now, two and a half years later, having left everything, they are hearing, I'm departing. And where I'm going, you can't come. Hearing an announcement like that could leave us with troubled hearts. Thirdly, I've already mentioned that one of their ministry colleagues, the one who actually looked after the money purse, has been identified by Jesus as the betrayer. Now, they may have not been able to connect the dots at the time. They may not have been able to say Judas Iscariot was the one Jesus was referring to. But there is no question that they heard and understood what Jesus said in verse 21. Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you in this room one of you will betray me. That kind of an announcement, that could leave us with a, with a troubled heart. And so as we come to the opening verses of John chapter 14, we can't be surprised to hear Jesus addressing this problem of a troubled heart. His disciples' hearts they were troubled. So what's troubling your heart this morning? The Greek word translated troubled is terasso. has a literal meaning of be troubled or be disturbed. I take, type troubled heart into my online Bible. And the references that came up were both enlightening, but not surprising. 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10 reads, Now David's heart, that's King David's heart, was troubled. His heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. You know, sin can leave us with troubled hearts. I've experienced that. And I'm sure you have too. But the danger is occurred when we, when we refuse to respond appropriately to our troubled hearts. We reach for a bottle of alcohol or some prescription or non-prescription drugs or we bury ourselves in our work. Anything to avoid the hard work of confession and repentance. Refusing to acknowledge, confess, and repent sin turns troubled hearts into hearts of stone. And as a result, our responses to God, other people, the circumstances of life 
are impaired. Maintaining authentic relationship becomes extremely difficult. We find it easier and easier to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Sin can leave us with a troubled heart. Lamentations 2 verse 11 says, My eyes failed because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. When little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city. Jeremiah, the prophet, is distraught over what he's seeing in the city of Jerusalem. The destruction of Jerusalem, his fellow Israelites, in all kinds of pain and suffering. Tough times for ourselves and or in the lives of the people that we love can leave us with troubled hearts. We're left standing on the sidelines, unable to do anything but, but watch and try to offer appropriate words of encouragement as loved ones struggle with the realities of their lives. Sure, sometimes self-inflicted, but at other times, unexplainable. And our hearts are troubled. Tough times can leave us with troubled hearts. In John chapter 11, verse 33, we're told that when Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. His friend Lazarus had now been in the tomb for four days. The death of people we love. Seeing people we love work their way through the grieving process because of some traumatic loss leaves us with troubled hearts. Death and grief can leave us with troubled hearts. And in John chapter 13, a chapter that we've just come through, when Jesus had said this, what was it that he had said in we look back at verse 18. I do not speak to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread and lifts up his heel against me. Jesus was thinking about the person that was going to betray him. He became troubled in his spirit. Relationship failures, unresolved conflict, betrayal, bitterness, separation, divorce, infidelity. They leave us with troubled hearts. Broken relationships can leave us with, with troubled hearts. 
And this is by no means an exhaustive list. Jesus warned these men before they left the upper room that in this world you will have tribulation. John chapter 16, verse 33. In the NIV Bible, it reads, in this world you will have trouble. The kind of trouble that produces troubled hearts. Additionally, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus offered this instruction. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own to live is to experience troubles and tribulation troubles and tribulations produce troubled hearts on the sermon notes that you'll find in the bulletin as you entered the worship center this morning You'll find that there's a line there. I've left a space. And I'd like us just to pause for a moment. And if you can identify the trouble in your heart this morning. You can write it down in that blank. What is causing your heart to be troubled? Folks, troubled hearts are a common problem. Here's the question. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life? John chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The remedy is quite simple. Believing in Jesus. Not just belief, but believing in God and believing in Jesus Christ. These 11 men, they believed in God, the God of the Old Testament. Now Jesus was asking them to expand that same kind of life, belief, so that it would encompass a belief in him following his departure. You see, no longer was he going to be physically present with them. And in the same way that they had believed in an invisible God, he was now asking them to believe in an invisible Jesus. Now granted, there are going to be some real advantages that would accompany his departure. But being as human as we are, We do like to cling to physical life. The disciples could hardly imagine life apart from Jesus, being in his presence. The New Living Translation reads, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Eugene Peterson's interpretive translation offers something similar. You trust in God, don't you? Trust also in me. 
trust, believe, receive. All words that the Apostle John uses synonymously in his gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus was requiring them to replace their troubled hearts. By the way, that that first clause in John chapter 14, verse 1, has the power of a commandment. Jesus is being gentle, but firm. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Instead, replace or exchange or remedy your troubled heart by believing in me. The antidote for anxiety is belief. Belief in Jesus. The tense of the Greek words used here, translated believe or trust, carries the idea of keep on believing, keep on trusting. Regardless of the events or circumstances you may find yourself in, in good times and through the challenging, more difficult times, keep on believing in me. Now I realize that in a group like this, our anxiety thresholds are all different. Some people just seem to be more anxious by nature. They can be preoccupied with the worries of life so easily. But regardless of where you find yourself on that anxiety spectrum, regardless of where you land, think about it. We believe in a sovereign, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. How does worry and anxiety fit into that equation? It doesn't. It is our unbelief that leaves us exposed. The antidote for anxiety is belief. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Remember A.W. Tozer's quote? What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Is he a trustworthy God? Can you trust him? Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, petition, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Jesus was requiring them to replace their troubled hearts with believing hearts. Regardless of what happens, keep on believing that I am who I claim to be. Keep on believing what you saw me do and you heard me teach. Keep on believing that I will do what I promised I will do. Folks, that's as true today as it was for those 11 disciples sitting in that upper room on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Jesus is inviting you and me to keep on trusting him. Keep on believing in him, regardless of what life throws at us. You and I will have all kinds of opportunities, probably on a daily basis, to let our hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me, Jesus said. And if not, what's the alternative? Unbelief. Trusting something other than God or Jesus. The psalmist names a couple of alternatives in Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. The choice is yours. The choice is mine. Chariots and horses or whatever the preferred or popular alternative of the day might be. Dr. Phil, Oprah, antidepressants, the gym, or the Lord your God. Granted, the alternatives may bring some temporary relief. I can't argue that. But there is only one source, one source that can offer lasting, eternal peace. Look just down the page in John chapter 14 at verse 27. Peace I leave with you, Jesus said. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. The remedy for a troubled heart is believing Jesus. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life? That's the question. In verses 3 through 6, I've identified five assurances. We'll go through these rather quickly. That Jesus provides so that we will embrace this remedy. The rationale, Jesus' assurances. Notice verse 2. In my Father's house 
In other words, in heaven. Heaven is a real place. Now, some have suggested that Jesus was referring to the church, even though the Apostle John never uses the house metaphor at anywhere to refer to the church. In fact, the Father's house is never used anywhere in Scripture as a metaphor for the church. Others have suggested that Jesus was referring to the messianic kingdom. But Jesus said he's going there. And the messianic kingdom is not even in existence until his second advent, when he returns to earth. Turn with me just quickly back to John chapter 2. Look at verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near. John chapter 2, verse 13. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple. Verse 16. And those who were selling the doves said, he takes these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Clearly, his father's house was the temple. But in John chapter 14, is Jesus going to the temple? When he says he's departing? Absolutely not. But listen to these words from Hebrews chapter 9. And I'm going to read them from the New Living Translation. I think it'll be easier for us to understand what is happening here. Beginning at verse 21. And in the same way, he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle and on everything used for worship. Tabernacle was that movable tent, of the place of worship used in the Old Testament where the Israelites were making their way from Egypt to the promised land. God got them he gave them the design, and they built this tabernacle. In the same way, he sprinkled blood on the tabernacle and everything used for worship. In fact, according to the law of Moses, nearly everything was purified with blood, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That is why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of things in heaven, had to be purified with the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. Do you see it? Do you hear it? The tabernacle initially, and then the temple eventually, once the Israelites had become established in the promised land, was built in the city of Jerusalem, represented 
God's dwelling place among his people. But according to Hebrews chapter 9, they were just copies. Just copies of God's true dwelling place in heaven. And that is where Jesus is going. To God's true dwelling place. Not the copy, but the real thing. Heaven is a real place. As real as that Old Testament copy, the tabernacle or the temple. Not only is heaven real, but in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. Heaven is never going to be like one of those roadside motels with the sign all lit up, no vacancies. You're never going to pull into this hospital underground parking garage and see the sign full. Heaven can accommodate all believers. That's good news. Let's continue reading. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. What does that phrase mean? I go to prepare a place for you. I cannot believe that heaven is like some kind of construction site. And I know Jesus came from a family of a carpenter. And Josh McDowell wrote a book years ago called More Than a Carpenter. But I don't think Jesus has gone to heaven to construct an abode. So what is he referring to? How about his death, resurrection, ascension into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God? That's the preparation. Without that happening, well, look at the next point. Jesus was leaving to prepare a place for them. And he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. How comforting is that? How comforting is that? Look ahead at verse 18 of John chapter 14. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. Cynthia and I were blessed with three boys. But by the time they were 17 or 18 years old, they'd grown quite independent of mom and dad and were chasing their own opportunities that this life offered. As a result, we found ourselves separated, not only by miles, but often by provinces. And so we just didn't have the opportunity to get together much. And Cynthia is not great at saying goodbyes. And just, that's one of her few, very few weaknesses. 
But when we would see our guys and they would come home or we would go to their place for a visit, she just hated saying goodbye. And the guys didn't appreciate the fact that mom didn't enjoy saying goodbye. So none of us enjoyed saying goodbye. But one of the things that we found was helpful, made it easier, is if we knew the next time they were going to see one another. Even if it was six months down the road, at least we knew we had a date, a time, and a place when we're going to meet again. That softens the time of separation. Jesus would return for them so that where I am, there you may be also. There's one more. It's found in verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You may want to circle those two little words. No one. Believing in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation is your only point of access into heaven. I know it sounds narrow and exclusive in a world that celebrates tolerance and all kinds of inclusivity. But Jesus remains unapologetic. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Jesus is the only access into heaven. He's it. There you have it. Five assurances that provide the rationale for exchanging a troubled heart with a heart that will keep on believing in Jesus regardless of what life throws at us. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? The chorus says, we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let's pray. Father, you are the sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present God. There is no one like you. Your word invites us to cast all our anxiety on you because you care for us. Enable us to keep on believing, to keep on trusting, even when pressed by life's troubles. 
May our testimony mirror the words of the psalmist. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid. For you are close beside me, your rod and your staff. They protect and comfort me. May this be our story. May this become our song, trusting the Savior all day long by the power of the Holy Spirit for your glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.